Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with perhaps the most effective strategy within the multi-layered Republican assault on democracy underway, and that is what Steve Bannon calls the precinct strategy, in which Republican loyalists are being recruited for key posts at the local and precinct level to take over election machinery to ensure Republican victories and Trump's comeback. The strategy also involves building alliances on issues like vaccine requirements and mask mandates to take over school boards and expand the pro-Trump base. Joining us is Peter Stone, a Washington-based investigative journalist who has covered a wide array of lobbying, legal and campaign finance issues, working for the National Journal, McClatchy Newspapers and the Legal Times, among other publications. He's the author of Heist, Super Lobbyist Jack Abramoff, His Republican Allies and the Buying of Washington, and currently writes for The Guardian, where his latest article is Bannon and Allies Bid to Expand Pro-Trump Influence in Local U.S. Politics. We will investigate the funding behind the various front groups, such as Turning Point USA, America's Future, The America Project, and County Citizens Defending Freedom USA. Then we'll examine the recent warning from a Canadian scholar at the forefront of analyzing violent conflict that, quote, by 2025, American democracy could collapse, causing extreme domestic political instability, including widespread civil violence. By 2030, if not sooner, the country could be governed by a right-wing dictatorship. Joining us is Thomas Homer Dixon, who is director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. Between 2009 and 2014, he was founding director of the Waterloo Institute for Complexity and Innovation, and his books include The Upside of Down, Catastrophe, Creativity and the Renewal of Civilization, The Ingenuity Gap, Can We Solve the Problems of the Future, and Environment, Scarcity and Violence. His latest book is Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. And we will discuss his article at the Globe and Mail, The American Polity is Cracked and Might Collapse. Canada Must Prepare. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Peter Stone, a Washington-based investigative journalist who has covered a wide array of lobbying, legal and campaign finance issues, working for the National Journal, McClatchy Newspapers and the Legal Times, among other publications. He's the author of Heist, Super Lobbyist Jack Abramoff, His Republican Allies and the Buying of Washington, and he currently writes for The Atlantic, The New Republic, New York Magazine and The Guardian, where his latest article is Bannon and Allies Bid to Expand Pro-Trump Influence in Local U.S. Politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Stone. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And it's sort of going a little bit under the radar, even though Bannon, of course, is in the news, having defied the House Select Committee. And then, of course, subsequently, he's been indicted by the Justice Department. But what he's doing, in spite of the legal jeopardy that he may face, 
and of course he's defiant by nature, and he, I think he feeds off that defiance, is what he calls this precinct strategy that's underway in this multi-layered Republican assault on democracy. It seems to be incredibly effective, and I think it's caught the Democrats by surprise. I'm not sure they have anything even comparable. What has your reporting discovered for you, Peter, about the asymmetry between the activism on the Republican side and the Democratic side on this central key issue of voting rights? Well, certainly, I mean, Bannon is just one part of a large attack uh, on voting rights that Republicans have been waging, Trump allies have been waging for months now, uh, after they were unsuccessful in overturning the election results uh, from 2020. Bannon, uh, just to be clear, has been indicted now on two counts of uh, contempt of Congress. And he's pled not guilty and is due to go to trial probably in the summer now is what we've been what's been reported. But his efforts to you know, try to help boost Trump's position and to boost Republican fortunes in 2022 and 2024, as I was saying, was part of a larger effort. He has used his podcast, uh, The War Room, which he calls an organizing tool uh, and has something as a extraordinary number of uh, viewers and listeners, listeners, I should say. He's used the podcast um, for months now to promote what he calls a precinct strategy of you know, finding local allies who would occupy key positions um, in elections and who would have potential to influence those elections. Some are candidates for local office, and he's had some of them on his radio show. This is, you know, one facet, as I said, of a larger Republican campaign that Trump himself has waged by report by endorsing new candidates to oust foes who didn't go along with him in 2020, such as Brad Raffsenberger, the Secretary of State in Georgia who defied Trump's efforts when Trump leaned on him in a call on January 2nd, 2021, when Trump leaned on him to find enough votes to overturn Biden's win there. So Trump is supporting an alternative to uh, Raffsenberger in elections coming up this fall. And the Georgia legislature is one of over a dozen in the country that's passed new laws that tighten up voting requirements, uh, tighten up absentee ballots, tighten up uh, other voting requirements that are seen as discriminating heavily against minority and Democratic voters. That's a huge, you know, part of this fight that's going on. It's also been waged in other ways, too. But the Bannon piece of it is less covered. He's boasted about it, you know, on his on his podcast, and it's gotten some coverage in some good publications, ProPublica. Uh, but I think it's something that the Democrats are nervous about. They don't have, as far as I know, they don't have anything quite like it at this stage. And certainly, they're very concerned about more broadly um, the attack on voting rights and have been working very hard to try to get a national bill through Congress that would restore some, you know, or guarantee voting rights. 
And that's been blocked primarily by, you know, a filibuster threat in the Senate uh, and no Republican support and no, um, you know, so far they don't have enough votes to get it through the Senate. It's passed the House, a couple of bills that would, you know, protect voting rights. And again, I'm speaking with Peter Stone, who's a Washington-based investigative journalist who has covered a wide array of lobbying, legal and campaign finance issues, working for the National Journal, McClatchy Newspapers, and the Legal Times, among other publications. He's the author of Heist, Super Lobbyist Jack Abramoff, His Republican Allies and the Buying of Washington, and he currently writes for The Atlantic, The New Republic, New York Magazine, and The Guardian, where his latest article is Bannon and Allies Bid to Expand Pro-Trump Influence in Local U.S. Politics. So if you go for the mechanics, the actual <laughs> levers of power in the, in the literal sense, and you've got people that normally you had neutral poll workers that were dedicated to democracy itself, and if you've got people that are dedicated to undoing democracy and supporting autocracy, it's a pretty frightening prospect. And your article at The Guardian, Peter Stone, Bannon and Allies, bid to expand pro-Trump influence in local U.S. politics. The Allies have got deep pockets, have they not? The guy from uh, the furniture company Overstock, Patrick Byrne? Well, Patrick Byrne is working on other other parts of this. He has helped fund rallies and a tour uh, that's been going on in 2021 uh, and is continuing this year called Reawaken America which his uh, associate General Flynn, who is spokesman for a burn group called the America Project, Flynn has been the star at these rallies, um, and they mix disinformation, uh, debunk charges about the 2020 elections, and what they still believe was massive fraud that uh, enabled Biden to win. That's been widely discredited. Um, Flynn has been a star at these rallies. And as I said, they mix false information about the 2020 election with a number of other conservative issues and some evangelical themes. They've been, the rallies have included doctors uh, who are considered less than, um, less than authoritative who've been pushing, you know, phony cures for COVID, opposing mask mandates, uh, raising questions about effectiveness of vaccines. These include uh, a woman named Dr. Simone Gold, who is in Beverly Hills. You've probably heard of her. She's been a leader of a group of very conservative doctors who have been active on this front in the last year and has her own, has had her own little, uh, PR tour going on over part of 2021. Yes, they have deep pockets and the Flynn effort that Byrne has backed is another facet of this. Flynn has also recently come out for some candidates himself in different states who are Trump loyalists. So they're, they're multi, you know, again, it's a multi-pronged attack on what were considered in the past mostly, you know, fair elections with a minimum of fraud. Well, hasn't Flynn's brother, Joe Flynn, taken over the direction of the America Project? 
Well, he's taken a, a, a prominent role there. Yeah, he's taken over our role as president. It's hard to tell yet how, you know, it's 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 a fancy title. Uh, it probably will give him additional, I mean, it will give him certainly uh, significant authority. How much, who, who calls the shots there is still a little bit uh, unclear. Byrne was the founder of the group, has been involved with it from the get-go in early 2021. Flynn, General Flynn, uh, has been special advisor and spokesman for the group. And he has another group, which I mentioned in my story, uh, called America's Future, which he became chairman of in May. They, too, have a project underway that uh, involves an alliance of county, uh, county groups and other conservative groups. And they've been focused a lot on... Um, you know, finding allies, new candidates to win office on the county level, which has some definite echoes of Bannon's precinct strategy. Uh, again, focusing on issues which seem to be resonating with Trump base. Again, issues like opposition to mass man- mandates and uh, vaccine skepticism and uh, continuing to demand audits on the 2020 election, which has been, I should say, part of the uh, Patrick Byrne agenda, too, at the America Project. So nothing they're doing is based on facts, reality, science, right? It's just pure political activism in, in a very negative way. But one of the things that they're very good at, the Republicans, and I don't think the Democrats, even though they the young vote is theirs for the picking. It seems like the Republicans are being very effective in the, in another one of these groups called Turning Point USA, which is focused on recruiting young people. Right, and it's broadened its agenda considerably. I mean, that's how it started uh, about a decade ago, and uh, it's become much larger, much more influential. It's had major fundraisers the last three years each December of the last three years, it's at events down at Mar-a-Lago, uh, at the Trump uh, Mar-a-Lago residence resort. Uh, res- residence now has been, you know, his club, and they have built, you know, an alliance. They seem to have a lot of support from Donald Trump Jr. They're very active on college campuses, but they're have expanded into. You know, Charlie Kirk, who's the head of it, has become a talk radio figure and have ties to some of the Christian evangelical right as well. Uh, They have allied themselves with one of the Flynn groups on this county project. So they're a big a big presence, too, in this sort of multi pronged effort that we're talking about. And how are they doing in terms of getting around being deplatformed? I take it they've moved a lot to Telegram. And something else called Getter? Well, Bannon, Bannon, Bannon has, Bannon has, because he was deplatformed, yes. Bannon has moved to Telegram and some other alternative uh, online sites and has a large following, according to people who, who track data on this. I interviewed a expert from Elon University named Megan Squire, who, you know, found a lot of information that they've been fairly successful in building, you know, a following on some of the 
alternative online sites, Telegram being one. Well, you almost wish that the Democrats had a Bannon, but I guess they're just too nice. <laughs> Is that their problem? I mean, I'm uh, given what they're doing in order to rig the vote for the Republicans at the precinct level and putting in people that literally are not in the machinery of democracy, that are opposed to democracy and want to enable autocracy. That in itself is extraordinary, but it reminds me of what Stalin once said. It doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts the vote. Right. Well, I think Bannon has uh, certainly some autocratic tendencies. Flynn has voiced autocratic sentiments. But it's you know one thing to hear their plans. Uh, cautionary note is important. It's one thing to hear their plans, and Bannon likes to boast a lot. Flynn, too, has talked loosely at different times in the last year about uh, topics that uh, have drawn heavy criticism. Um, it's one thing to, you know, launch these efforts. How successful that will be is another, you know, question mark. It's still... And uh, obviously, there's been some attention paid to them, and they may gain scrutiny from various, you know, investigators. It's unclear how much scrutiny they will get because, obviously, the House Committee, looking January 6th, has focused on other things that Bannon has done in the run-up to, you know, the 20 or right after the 2020 election to help Trump. Uh, likewise, they focused on what Flynn was doing after the 2020 election to help Trump. Um, but they're certainly on the radar screen of the House Select Committee, and um, and they may be on other uh, radar screens too going forward. Yeah, but what's being done to stop the takeover of elections at the state and county level, at the precinct level? Well, well, as far as I know, these are you know fairly nascent efforts. They're fledgling efforts. That's what I was trying to say a while ago. I mean, they've been talking a lot about it. They've been trying to build uh, alliances. They've got candidates they're grooming to run for office. Part of this has to do with getting candidates in elected, right? It's not just installing them. Um, you know, they're doing a lot of organizing. Some of it may pay dividends, may pay, you know, considerable dividends in 22, 2022, but it also, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. I'm not trying to minimize, I'm not trying to minimize it, but I'm just saying there's a lot of bravado, uh, certainly from Bannon. He talks big and how much, how successful he will be is still an open question. Um, they have money, both, you know, particularly the Flynn operation uh, has wooed some very wealthy backers who are committed to spreading a lot of disinformation about what happened in 2020. And that's very worrisome. Both of them are doing that. That's very clearly worrisome. And all the disinformation about the election results has been instrumental in prompting state legislatures to pass new laws, Republican legislatures, primarily dominated legislatures, to pass new laws that will make voting harder. That we already know has had results, right? Mm -hmm. Something like 19 state legislatures, according to the Brennan Center, 
have passed laws this year. That part they have achieved results on. The part about, you know, how far they've gotten in terms of, quote, the precinct strategy is still, you know, uh, a work in progress is what I'm trying to get at. Well, in the last minute then, Peter, let me just ask you in the last minute here that what you're indicating, though, is, again, another asymmetry between the Republicans and the Democrats. Republican donors, big money, deep pockets guys just give money for strategy. They understand the importance of strategy. The Democratic donors, on the other hand, are interested in in candidates and issues. And and look what they did, for example, running Amy McGrath against McConnell. They raised $90 million on a completely dead-on-arrival race. So there seems to be an asymmetry there that the Democratic donors want flashy headline grabbers, uh, whereas the Republican donors invest in strategy. Well, there, there's some examples on the Democratic side, I think, that would probably indicate they're they're not quite as asleep as, you know, you're suggesting. Uh, I think the Republicans have been on a tear since the 2020 defeat of Trump to try to change the playing field. Uh, and that certainly has had some results already in terms of state legislatures that have enacted all these laws and candidates who Trump and allies are putting a lot of money behind um, in key states, Georgia, Arizona, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, where there are candidates running for governors, Senate seats, uh, secretary of state seats who are still out there saying, you know, the election was a fraud. So there's a lot of money going into that too. It's and uh, I think Democrats are aware of that element as well, as well as the state legislatures and are trying very hard to figure out a strategy to get a bill through Congress, which would be extraordinarily helpful and important in countering the new rash of state laws that are making voting harder. So there are efforts underway, and there's some money going into those as well. I'm sure there are lobbying campaigns, there are ad campaigns to turn up the heat on Mansion, to support, you know, a carve out of some sort on the filibuster. Different strategies are playing out there. Right now, it's looking kind of gloomy, but hopeful. You know, things may change. Well, Peter Stone, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Stone, who's a Washington-based investor journalist who has covered a wide array of lobbying, legal, and campaign finance issues, working for the National Journal, McClatchy Newspapers, The Legal Times, and other publications. He's the author of Heist, Super Lobbyist Jack Abramoff, His Republican Allies in the Buying of Washington, and he currently writes for The Atlantic, The New Republic, New York Magazine, and The Guardian, where his latest article is Bannon and Allies Bid to Expand Pro-Trump Influence in Local U.S. Politics. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a Canadian scholar at the forefront of analyzing violent conflict who says that by 2025, American democracy could collapse, causing extreme domestic political instability, including widespread civil violence. And by 2030, if not sooner, the country could be governed by a right-wing dictatorship. Well, I met you on election night As we cried over our beer Nothing you could do would cheer me up 
broke up later that year Well, how come you and I aren't winners? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Homer Dixon, who is the director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. Between 2009 and 2014, he was the founding director of the Waterloo Institute for Complexity and Innovation, and his books include The Upside of Down, Catastrophe, Creativity, and the Renewal of Civilization, The Ingenuity Gap, can We Solve the Problems of the Future, and Environment, Scarcity, and Violence. And his latest book is Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. And he has an article at the Globe and Mail, The American Polity is Cracked and Might Collapse. Canada Must Prepare. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Homer Dixon. It's good to be with you. And the message that you've put out here has gotten a lot of attention here in the Colossus to the South, and that is this uh, message that by 2025, American democracy could collapse, causing extreme domestic political instability, including widespread civil violence. By 2030, if not sooner, the country could be governed by a right-wing dictatorship. So you're joining others who, are, or others are joining you, like Stephen March and Barbara Walters, who I spoke with yesterday as a new book, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. It seems to be in the zeitgeist. What prompted you to write this piece? I've been thinking about this for this piece in particular for over six months. Um, but like so many people, uh, I've been very concerned about the political, social and cultural developments in the United States for years since before uh, Donald Trump was elected as president. Uh, and I was writing extensively about the implications of his election before he was elected, actually. Uh, but this particular piece uh, emerged from a sense that, especially in Canada, uh, we had sort of come to the conclusion that all that disarray in the United States had gone away with the election of President Biden and his installation as president. Uh, and we didn't have to worry about the United States anymore. It was like this huge sigh of relief. And frankly, I think there was probably a sigh of relief around much of the world and democratic polities around the world. But when you tracked what was happening within the country, within the United States, the situation's actually deteriorating quite quite quickly. And I also, uh, I read two things over the summer that helped crystallize my concerns. One was the remarkable biography of Hitler, the first volume of, of Volker Ulrich's biography of Hitler that charts his rise up to 1939. And I was particularly interested in the Weimar Republic, what happened during the Weimar period in the, in the 1920s and early 30s in Germany, and also how quickly Hitler was able to consolidate power after he became chancellor in early 33. And the second thing I read was a, um, a draft manuscript, which is uh, soon to be published as a book by Oxford University Press by a young English scholar who's been a colleague of mine for many years, uh, Jonathan Leader Maynard. And the title of it is Ideology and Mass Killing. And Jonathan is quickly establishing himself as probably one of the world's leading theorists on the implications of ideology for social instability and violence. And uh, I, I started to understand better, even though I've studied these issues for many decades, how 
how radical ideologies can essentially produce a kind of self-reinforcing dynamic within a society of extremism and increased radicalization. In a sense, the ideologies take on a, a life of their own. And as I was reading both of these, these documents, I could see so many echoes and so many resonances with what was happening in the United States. And I felt really that message had to become uh, more broadly, more broadly uh, disseminated, I guess you could say, within, within Canada at least. I never expected it was going to get such attention around the world. And you also, in your article, point out that President, former President Trump, if he does come back in uh, 2024, he will have, have only two objectives, vindication and vengeance. I mean, you're a political scientist, but in many ways, it's almost like we need to tap into psychiatry here because this is a man who has uh, such a fragile ego, but he's also a chronic narcissist that he cannot accept defeat. And it's so clear from what happened when he got defeated and then with the negotiations he had to try and overturn the election on January the 5th and thereabouts and then on the 6th, basically turning a huge crowd towards the Capitol. Uh, plan B, if you will. He first mm -hmm. tried a coup. It didn't work. He couldn't get Pence to go along with his coup. Then he turned the mob on the Capitol and then that's plan B and plan C arguably was that he would have declared martial law and a state of emergency. So the thing that I find extraordinary is that the divisions in this country which pre-existed but Trump has exacerbated enormously are now being even widened by this essentially sick man who cannot personally accept defeat and mm. he has managed to basically project this neurosis of his onto the GOP, and it's metastasized into a political movement known as Stop the Steal, based on a lie, a complete fiction. It's mm. just extraordinary, don't you think? Well, it is extraordinary and terrifying, to be frank. And one of the things I note in my article uh, in the Globe and Mail is the quite striking parallels with uh, developments in the Weimar Republic in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and I note uh, five parallels in particular, including uh, the fact that in both cases, an uh, extraordinarily charismatic leader was able to mobilize his extremist followers to try to seize the state or attempt to seize the state in Trump's case, but actually succeed in Hitler's case. Um, and we can get into a discussion of uh, the pathologies of Donald Trump. I think it's worth actually talking about those things, uh, whether he's clinically mentally ill or not. But uh, the key thing is that he has this extraordinary charismatic hold on uh, tens of millions of followers. Uh, and in that, that sense, he's truly brilliant. He has a capacity to communicate with them that is unparalleled. Um, another thing I noted in my comments about Weimar is, and you just highlighted it, is that uh, in both cases, there was this falsehood that became a kind of uh, uh, catalyst for mobilization and radicalization. In the case of Weimar for the Nazis, it was the stab in the back, the idea that there were internal enemies, Jews in particular, who had allowed Germany to be defeated in the First World War and had undermined it from within. And of course, now we have this falsehood, the big lie about the 2020 election being stolen which is truly poisonous for democracy. 
if people can't trust the institutions, the electoral machinery in a democracy, then everything starts to fall apart. So, and, and as I also point out, it kind of establishes a line between those who are worthy of moral consideration as real Americans and those who are outside that boundary. If, from the point of view of a lot of Trump supporters, if they accept the big lie, then there are tens of millions of people in the country who have essentially stolen power from their leader. And they are no longer worthy of, of membership in the moral community of America. And as I point out in my article, that's only one psychological step away from the kind of dynamics of dehumanization that have led to some of the worst violence in human history. Uh, so these uh, these parallels are very, I think it's right to describe them as more than scary, they're terrifying. And one thing that I'm trying to communicate to people as a, something of an expert in these areas is that it's not clear where this process stops. I mean, people think, well, okay, Trump becomes president again. I mean, he may create a, a regime that's similar to Viktor Orban's regime in Hungary, or or maybe we'll end, end up with something ultimately like a kind of Putin-esque hard nationalist autocracy. But there's also a, a, a an either of which would be terrible for the United States and terrible for the world, of course. But but there's also a scenario in which uh, which you see much broader, deeper uh, violence, much of it organized by the state against populations internally that are regarded as enemies. And this is where Jonathan Leader Maynard's arguments come in because he talks about, and this is another parallel with Weimar, the propagation of, of what he calls hardline security doctrines. Doctrines that basically, ideologies that basically say there are internal enemies and they need to be eliminated. We're hearing that language more and more often from the extreme right in the United States, and it's being picked up even by people who are close to, uh, to closer to power. And that's, and, and it's echoed by Donald Trump himself. And that's very scary. And again, I'm speaking with Thomas Homer Dixon, who is the director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Rose University in Victoria, British Columbia, and between 2009 and 2014 was the founding director of the Waterloo Institute for Complexity and Innovation, and his books include The Upside of Down, Catastrophe, Creativity, and the Renewal of Civilization, The Ingenuity Gap, Can We Solve the Problems of the Future, and Environment, Scarcity, and Violence, and his latest book is Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew the World, A World in Peril, and he has an article at the Globe and Mail, The American Polity is Cracked and Might Collapse, Canada Must Prepare. So the analogy, though, with Weimar and between Trump and Hitler, of course, Trump is no Hitler. Trump was just spectacularly incompetent, whereas Hitler, at least yes. uh, in the beginning, was pretty competent. He captured most of the world and then went mad. But how does that explain the cult-like adherence to him when you've got people like as you mentioned, your article, Tucker Carlson and Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, they've transformed the Republican Party into a near-fascist personality cult that's a perfect instrument for wrecking democracy. Why do they worship this man? What do they see in him that is uh, obviously not there? Well, I think you've touched on a number of really important points. I mean, there was a striking, striking difference between Donald Trump. I mean, there are many differences, and one always has to be very careful when you st when you start talking about Weimar Germany and the rise of the Nazis and Hitler. Uh, Donald Trump is not Hitler. One of the things that I I I uh, 
recognized as I was reading Ulrich's biography is that uh, Hitler was strategically, politically incredibly smart, and he was smart tactically too, and he learned very fast from his errors. And uh, he was often one or two steps ahead of everybody else around him in the, as he, as he uh, maneuvered the Nazi party within the Weimar democracy to increase its vote. So I think in some respects, democracy was saved in the United States by Donald Trump's incompetence, uh, at least with respect to things like the pandemic. If he'd been more successful in handling the COVID pandemic, I think he would have been reelected. I, I mean, it's even possible that if the vaccines had been announced two weeks earlier, three weeks earlier, he would have won the election. It was a very close call. Um, but what kind of hold does he have on people? I, I think one of the greatest strengths you can have as a politician, conventional or otherwise, is to be underestimated. And I think people have made the mistake of underestimating Donald Trump. He is brilliant in his intuitive understanding of the emotional cadences of his followers. Of their of their needs and how to appeal to them, both with positive emotions of devotion and loyalty and sense of duty, and negative emotions of fear and anger and disgust. And he's like a master conductor of a of an orchestra. And so he has that capacity to communicate with tens of millions of people who have been, as I point out in my article, significantly excluded from the, the trajectory of economic development and the benefits of economic development in the United States over the last several decades. So median uh, male wages haven't increased, uh, and uh, didn't increase between 1979 and 2019 at when you take account of inflation, which is extraordinary when you think about it. And meanwhile, CEO incomes have skyrocketed. Uh, the average CEO's income is uh, now close to 300 times that of an employee within his or her company, whereas in the 1970s, it was around 30 times. So these widening income gaps, the concentration of wealth and opportunity in large metropolitan areas, especially in coastal zones, while much of the rest of the country falls behind and people suffer from chronic insecurity and fear about losing their health care, collapse of manufacturing industries as they've moved overseas or down to Mexico. And so when Donald Trump spoke in his inauguration uh, in early 2017 about, how did he call it, the, the wreckage of America or something like that, you know, a lot of liberals scoffed and said, what is he talking about? But when you go to these parts of the country and you see how how they've stagnated and in many cases have been left behind by the rest of the country, you get a, start to get a sense for the anger. So Donald Trump, you want to know what his hold is? He's, he's their wrecking ball. He's, he's the guy who will go in and teach those elites a lesson, smash things up, wreck the system, because the system, as far as many of these people are concerned, isn't working for them. It's corrupt. And then they, and then of course he just further accelerates the process by feeding in various kinds of falsehoods and lies about conspiracies and about stolen elections and the like. So don't underestimate Donald Trump when it comes to his capacity to understand and manipulate the emotions of his followers. And, uh, but my concern is that he is just the next stage of potentially a two-stage process. That he will win re-election. He will uh, manage to essentially remove from the bureaucratic state apparatuses, especially in Washington, D.C., the technocrats, 
and others who who are uh, holding things together and abiding by the rule of law. And then and then he basically sets up the situation for a more managerially competent uh, right wing autocrat following on from him. So so uh, the charisma he has could do all the damage necessary to produce this kind of slide into dictatorship that I talk about in my article. Well, the other possibility, though, is that he could actually, I mean, this massive voter suppression going on, which the GOP is completely uh, brazen about, and mm. they'd rather cheat than compete. It's pretty obvious. But Trump could actually win in 2024, and the Republicans could win in 2022. Yes. Trump could win simply because the I mean, Democrats are sort of floundering. Uh, they've so mishandled uh, Manchin, who was from the beginning said what he was about and what he, what he would accept. And yet they dragged out these negotiations forever. And Biden, of course, in many ways was elected because he was a, a longtime insider serving yes. in the Senate for a number of decades. And the expectation was that he would, you know, he could reach across the aisle and get things done. And that's clearly not happening. So the American people, ideology aside, they want somebody that can deliver. And yes. The perception, even though the Democrats have delivered on a lot of things, the perception is that, you know, we look at the poll numbers for Biden. Yes, I think he suffered terribly from specifics like the um, botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, but also the continuation of the pandemic and the resurgence of the pandemic. He's the he's the guy on deck, so he gets blamed. Uh, but I think you're quite right. It's 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 entirely conceivable that not only will Republicans take both houses of Congress in the 2022 elections, relatively legitimately, if you sort of ignore the fact that a lot of the rules have been bent in the processes, process through gerrymandering and the like. And then they could quite possibly, uh, given anger and despectic attitudes within the American population in 20, 2023 and 2024, could reelect Donald Trump in a sense legitimately. Uh, by playing more or less according to the rules in 2024. But it, there's also the possibility that it will be a very close thing and that the difference between a Democratic and a Republican presidency will come down to outright vote suppression and manipulation and control of electoral machinery in specific tipping point states. And uh, and in that case, I think we're looking at a situation that where you could have a profoundly divided population and real possibilities for violence between the two sides. I mean, one thing I keep coming back to in, in my article, I mentioned it several times, is just the extraordinary level of uh, weapons availability within the United States. I mean, it's there's no other country in the world, I believe, I don't even think Switzerland with its state-managed availability of weapons for civil defense. Uh, there's no other country in the world that has the kind of easy availability of light weapons that the United States does. Now, uh, most of them are, there's a disproportionate control of those weapons and ownership of those weapons on the right of the political spectrum. So if the Democrats squeaked out a victory in 2024, Trump or whoever's uh, the Democratic presidential candidate, let's say it's Trump, would almost certainly declare that that was illegitimate, that it was manipulated. And I I don't see a scenario in which that produces a happy outcome, that I see a, possibly a very high probability of significant violence in that kind of situation. 
And we're continuing the conversation with Thomas Homer Dixon, who's the director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Rose University in Victoria, British Columbia. And between 2009 and 2014, he was the founding director of the Waterloo Institute for Complexity and Innovation. And his books include The Upside of Down, Catastrophe, Creativity and the Renewal of Civilization, The Ingenuity Gap, Can We Solve the Problems of the Future and Environment, Scarcity and Violence. And his latest book is Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. And he has an article at the Globe and Mail, The American Polity is Cracked and Might Collapse, Canada Must Prepare. So in terms of, uh, you know, the kindling is there for a civil war, there's no question. And, and you mentioned, in fact, I spoke the other day with Robert Pape at the University of Chicago who's doing mm. research into, particularly into the, the numbers of people in this country yes. who believe that the election was stolen and that violence will be necessary to restore Trump to his rightful place. And then you put into the mix the 400 million firearms in the hands of ordinary citizens. That's incredibly lethal. But the possibility then that you were suggesting would be, I imagine, that if the voter suppression is such and the, and the stealing of the election and the rigging is such, particularly with the Republican legislatures in various states simply changing the votes because they don't like the outcome. You could have a lot of angry Democrats, one, many minorities who tried to vote and couldn't vote because of voter suppression, and then those that did vote, to to see their votes so brazenly stolen, they may take to the streets. And of course, in many ways, if you look at what happened with Black Lives Matter and the response from the militias, it's left-wing activism, not left-wing violence, but left-wing activism becomes an excuse for right-wing violence, does it not? Well, there's, and there's another uh, element to that scenario. What happens if, for instance, uh, the evidence is pretty clear that these Republican legislatures are operating beyond the boundaries of the law and President Biden simply refuses to accept the election result? Uh, or it's, it's, it simply refuses to accept uh, the slates of electors or the process of voting through the electoral college that's been corrupted by those state legislatures as they put forward their own slates of electors. So he, he isn't prepared to tra- transfer power under those circumstances. Uh, I think that we're in uh, highly speculative scenarios at this point um, now. To be fair, a lot of people who know the details of the potential dynamics much better than I are starting to think about these scenarios in in detail. Um, there's been a, a fixation on the possibility of quote unquote civil war, some some uh, type of civil war quite distinct from, of course, America's great civil war, uh, more like chronic uh, insurgent violence occurring in various parts of the country between uh, highly mobilized partisans on each side. I I think that that's a bit distracting. I think the conversation about civil war has received a lot of attention in the headlines over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I, I, my greater concern is the ultimately the consolidation of a anti-democratic right-wing regime. And I think that what my article did was it just put a straightforward label on it. Lawrence Tribe talks about despotism and other people talk about autocracy. I just said, said, you know, this would be a dictatorship. And uh, that's something that folks broadly understand. 
And that would be terrible for American society. It would be disastrous for the rest of the world and for Canada in particular. And we, we don't have any plan for this kind of thing in Canada. In fact, it's so out, it's been regarded as so outlandish, sort of beyond the pale, uh, unimaginable, that we haven't even started a conversation about it. And I think what has happened with the books, for instance, by Stephen Marsh and, and my article is that that dam has broken. And I think it may have broken around the world. What is the world going to do if the United States goes in this direction? Um, well, indeed, yes. you know, in yesterday's conversation with Barbara Walter, she, of course, served on the CIA advisory panel, Political Instability Task Force. So, and that's for a number of years up until recently. So they're looking into this, the CIA is. Is the CSIS in Canada looking into it? Uh, undoubtedly. I'm now starting to hear from various folks within the national security and intelligence communities in Canada. I, I, I mean, I, I've connected with them at various points in the past through my other work. And I'm starting, they're starting to now knock on my door and say, let's have a conversation about this. So there are discussions going on. I have to say, though, one of the things that I found most disturbing as I was writing this piece, first of all, just a bit of background. I, I went back to talk to a number of experts I'd spoken to just before Donald Trump was elected because I was writing a piece on uh, what the implications might be. And this is at a time when Hillary Clinton was actually fairly high in the polls. But I had the sense that uh, things would tip in Donald Trump's direction and that he had a very uh, high probability of being elected. So I, I talked to a number of folks, and one of them is somebody whose name I can't use because he's a senior federal appointee, but he's an expert on American civil military relations. And we've had several conversations over the intervening period, and I went back to talk to him as I was preparing this Global Mail article. And uh, uh, I, it was really striking how his assessment of the situation has changed. He was relatively sanguine about, about the capacity of American institutions to withstand this kind of um, attempt at, at political corruption these efforts of political corruption, but now he's not. And uh, we specifically talked about the military, and I have a couple of paragraphs on what he told me about the military in the United States. And he's very concerned that the military could be substantially, in a sense, suborned by Donald Trump through uh, strategic replacements of Joint Chiefs, members of Joint Chiefs of Staff, and also uh, civilians within the Department of Defense uh, and that, as this person said, he could ultimately bend the Department of Defense to his will. So specialists in this kind of state breakdown and civil instability always keep us an eye focused on what's happening with the military and where its political loyalties lie. If it splits in terms of its political loyalty, then you have, you really do have the, a significant precondition for major civil violence and civil war, because you have two parts of the military lined up against each other. If it shifts its loyalties because it has been effectively uh, subordinated to the autocrat, if it shifts its loyalties towards the autocrat, then it's very, very difficult for civil society, for opponents within the society more generally to sustain uh, opposition to uh, to the new political regime. 
So what happens within the military in the United States is vitally important. And I think a lot of uh, people outside the United States don't realize, I mean, I do because I did my graduate work in the United States and, and studied the American military extensively, don't realize how profoundly committed the American military has been to democracy, to, to uh, civilian leadership, and to the Constitution. Uh, when that starts to change and they become loyal to an individual or a new radicalized ideology, then the United States becomes a profound, a different polity at that point. Well, indeed, you know, the, we already know that Trump installed Cash Patel, the protege of Devin Nunez and Ezra Cohen-Watnick into top posts in the Pentagon. We know about generals like General Mike Flynn, uh, mm. now a big QAnon adherent. These are the kind of people that Trump could put in charge of the Pentagon. Yes. But just in the last couple of minutes, they're going back to the January the 6th insurrection. Of course, at its core, it was an attack on voting. And we've talked a lot about that. But and we've seen the international organizations that study democracy, for example, flagging the fact that the United States has been backsliding on democracy. But the GOP itself has been radicalized. And as you quote in your article, it's become a marriage of convenience between anti-government free market plutocrats and racially anxious ethno-nationalist activists and voters. So that's, of course, describing this phenomenon known as plutocratic populism. Mm. Is there any way to neutralize plutocratic populism? Because it is so pernicious, the idea. Yeah. At the end of the day, the plutocrats in this country, particularly the cynical and selfish ones like the Koch brothers, are prospering while dividing Americans against each other when, in fact, they have so much common interest. And among them, of course, is income inequality. And yet yes. the plutocrats, uh, you have to <laughs> admit it's a, it's a brilliant move on their part to be able to steal the country blind, to be absolutely greedy and not want to pay your taxes, at the same time to turn working people against each other. Yes. Yes. So credit where credit is due. That quotation was from uh, Theta Scotchpole, uh, a renowned political scientist and sociologist at Harvard University. Uh, and that uh, the article that it comes from is fairly easy to find on the web. Uh, that coalition between plutocrats, libertarian plutocrats who basically injected extreme libertarian philosophy into, uh, into the Republican Party and ethno-nationalists is at the heart of what's happened in this process. Ethno-nationalists, uh, basically folks who are uh, very disturbed about, uh, who are economically insecure in many cases and very disturbed about the rapid demographic and cultural changes of the United States. Uh, and uh, for them, as I said before, somebody like Donald Trump, uh, who is subsidized substantially by those plutocrats, is the wrecking ball who can tear apart the system. Uh, that's not working for them. Their country is changing around them. They feel they're losing it. They feel that they feel afraid and angry. And uh, somebody like Mr. Trump comes along and says, I can take care of you. I will fix it. And uh, and as far as they're concerned, they have nothing to lose. So uh, this is a very powerful coalition between these elements. Of course, it's going to blow up in the end for everybody, uh, including the plutocrats, because if if state if the state becomes a hardline regime, it's not going to be a favorable 
economic and investing environment for a lot of those plutocrats either, but um, they're not in many cases known for their long-sightedness. So uh, what can be what can be done? I mean, the one thing that would be an enormous boon to the United States at this point would be if the Republican Party were to split. And the moderate Republicans like Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney and others uh, set up their own centrist right party that uh, is much more clearly committed to democratic principles and the institutions of the United States, knowing that they would lose, but knowing that in the process they could also cause these radicals to lose. What we've seen in Canada, we have somewhat equivalent movements in Canada, but we've seen that the right has essentially split. And so the radicals have uh, have coalesced within a party called the People's Party of Canada. They have a voice. Uh, they, they, they have a, an opening to express their anger, but at the same time, they have no route to power. And, uh, and unfortunately, what we seem to be seeing, and again, Jonathan Leader Maynard has a lot to say about this, is that, the, uh, is that uh, people aren't defecting. The moderates aren't defecting from the Republican Party. They're too scared to. Uh, and, and in some cases, they're actually physically scared too. They're scared for the well-being of their family. And this is something that uh, a number of the, my interlocutors, when I prepared this article, were telling me that uh, the fear is really palpable on the part of a lot of moderate Republicans. And so they've fallen into line. And that is a process that occurs when you get these hardline security doctrines propagating through a society. Um, but we have some time still, and it's still conceivable that there might be a, a splintering of the Republican Party at some point, uh, especially after D Donald Trump declares his intention to run again. So uh, one can hope on that, on that score. Well, Thomas Homer Dixon, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Homer Dixon, who's the director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. Between 2009 and 2014, he was the founding director of the Waterloo Institute for Complexity and Innovation. And his books include The Upside of Down, Catastrophe, Creativity, and the Renewal of Civilization, The Ingenuity Gap, can We Solve the Problems of the Future, and Environment, Scarcity, and Violence. And his latest book is Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. And he has an article at the Globe and Mail, The American Polity is Cracked and Might Collapse, Canada Must Prepare. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.